WTTM062. Okay, we're in. Piggybacking on this MP3 file seems to have worked. Calibrate the transparency. Increasing Omega Pulse. Okay, we're online. Upload the show tag now. Welcome to the windowtothemagic.com podcast. Surround yourself with the magic. This episode of the windowtothemagic.com podcast is brought to you by www.magicalhotel.com. Featuring brochures, paper items, programs, and photographs from the early years of the Disneyland Hotel. After perusing the site's many offerings, you can pick up a copy of Don Ballard's stunning history of the Disneyland Hotel. Disneyland Hotel, the early years, 1954 to 1988. This book captures the amazing construction of this landmark resort and tells the story of how it became one of Southern California's premier family vacation destinations. The book includes vintage photos, memorabilia, and a foreword by the son of the original owner of the hotel. Pay a visit to MagicalHotel.com and relive the Disneyland Hotel's heyday. And now, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, your host, Mr. Patrick Hurd. And welcome once again to the windowtothemagic.com podcast. My name is Patrick, and this week I will be your guide through the wonderful world of Disney sound experiences. This show is a weekly trip into the world of the Disney theme parks and resorts, and this is the place where you use your ears to surround yourself with the magic. I'd like to start this week by thanking Don LaFontaine for sending me that awesome show tag. Most of you should have no problem recognizing Don as the... Movie announcer, voice guy, the one and only. All right, let's get to the emails. This one comes from Grant Baker. Patrick, hey, thanks for playing my request to sing It's a Fun, Fun World. It was an outstanding job by your daughter. This show is great as well, and I'm looking forward to the rest of it. Only got through part of it so far. Keep up the great work. You and Paul make a great team. Thanks, Grant. Your email made me realize that I'd identified the owner of that request as Steffi Lucchese, who actually had made a completely different Small World-related request. With the amount of email we get, I knew I was going to goof up eventually. Sorry about that. Glad I was able to fill your request, though. Here's an interesting question I got a few weeks ago. Hi, Patrick. I enjoy your segment on the podcast. I have a question for you. You played a clip from an Eminem song that has the Haunted Mansion music. What is the specific name of that song? Thanks, Janie. Well, I don't know exactly how to reply to this one. You see, Janie, that was me, not Eminem. Just a quick spoof I put together. Apparently, I did a better job than I thought if you believed it was real. Just the same, I'm not a big fan of rap, so correct me if I'm wrong. The background track was from a song called The Real Slim Shady, and I just dropped a few mansion elements on top of it, along with my highly filtered vocal. And before I get any more email about this, no, I do not intend on a career as a rap artist, no matter how good I am. Last month, I played a clip that I'd been sent from the Electric Parade featuring some mystery bubbles. When I heard the bubbles on the original clip, I went searching and found the same bubbles with different backing music on the Phantasmic CD. The one thing that was the same between the two clips was that they both followed the Pinocchio Pleasure Island units. 
I figured with the underwater segment in the Pinocchio film, the bubbles made sense. Look out below! My thought was that perhaps there was a float that had been removed while the bubbles from the soundtrack remained. I figured I was on the right track, but not being 100% sure, I decided to see what you guys could come up with, and I wasn't disappointed. Jason Saldivar wrote, Dear Window to the Magic, the Electrical Parade audio clip you did not know about actually belongs to a now-lost Pinocchio float. I personally don't remember seeing the float, if I ever did, because I was too young, 18 now. But my dad was telling me about past floats in the parade. This particular Pinocchio float featured an underwater scene referencing the scene in the movie when Pinocchio and Jiminy are underwater, hence the bubble sounds. If you listen carefully, the tune played by the bubbles is I've Got No Strings. There was more to Jason's email, so I'll get back to him in a few minutes. Next, TJ tossed in his two cents. The bubbles you played in episode 58 came from a float that ran in the early 80s version of the parade. The sound came from bubbles floating from the mouth of a large blue fish that swam by itself, accompanied by one or two doodlebug fishes. Later, it swam behind a giant monstro float with Pinocchio and Geppetto in his mouth. Rob also sent in this small note. I worked at Disneyland from 1980 to 1985. My recollection of the bubble sequence in the Main Street Electrical Parade is that it was a series of floats depicting underwater scenes that led to Pinocchio and Jiminy Cricket rescuing Geppetto. Now, obviously, TJ, Jason, and Rob echoed my theory with some pretty solid evidence, and then it occurred to me that I'd seen a picture of a Blue Whale Main Street Electrical Parade float in an old Disneyland book that I owned. I've gone ahead and posted the image over at the DPN in our Window to the Magic Show forum in the episode 62 thread if you want to check it out. It wasn't, however, until Jeremiah Good wrote in that it all finally came together. Patrick, here's the Main Street Electric Parade info you were asking about. The bubble part was from the parade pre-1983 when they had a briny deep unit. That was the first clip you played. The second clip had the Pleasure Island unit and then the briny deep floating behind it. Pleasure Island, then a big whale, so it tied together with Pinocchio. I might have missed some of the clips, but they also had a small world float at one time. Over the years, a few floats have come and gone, but also after 96, when they sent it to Walt Disney World from Disneyland, they chopped up a few of the floats, and others have gone forever. The Diamond Mine is the one I always miss. Okay, here's a little bit of the original bubble clip again. Now, if you listen really close, you can definitely tell that the backing music is indeed the beautiful Briny from Bedknobs and Broomsticks. How pleasant bobbing along, bobbing along on the bottom of the beautiful Briny Sea. What a chance! To get a better peep at the plants and creatures of the deep we glide. So, unless anyone else has anything to add, I'd say mystery solved. Alright, let me get back to the rest of Jason's email. He's got a few questions, so I'll break them up. I have a question about another float. I have heard that there was an It's a Small World float in the parade. I own the Fantasmic CD version of the parade, and there's no music to indicate that sort of a float. Is it true that an It's a Small World float was once in the parade? Yep, I've even seen footage of it somewhere. 
the float while mostly lights included some dancing into small world figures that were probably created using the actual molds from the animatronic figures. A few months back I was sent a clip that included the small world track, but instead of making you backtrack, I'll play it for you now. Next, he asks, What are your thoughts about the parade order today? According to the CD, some of the floats appear in different order than they do today in DCA. Why would they change the order? Well, I couldn't say exactly. As Jeremiah mentioned in his email, several of the floats were chopped or removed altogether, so they probably decided to reorganize the float order as well. As far as what I think of the parade nowadays, I haven't seen it since it was relit over at DCA. I don't really think it belongs over there, and I just can't bring myself to go see it. However, my wife Faith and our kids have not seen it at all, so if it's running on our next visit, I plan to take them over to DCA so they can at least see what's left of the parade. And finally, one more question. In today's version, the opening only says Disney's Electrical Parade, rather than Disneyland's. You mentioned in a past podcast that Jack Wagner is the voice in the opening. Did they re-record the opening altogether, or did they already have a copy of Jack's voice saying Disney? Well, back when the parade opened over at DCA, I read an article with an interview with one of the Imagineers responsible for bringing the parade back. He stated that as much of Jack Wagner's voice was used as possible, and he used his own voice to fill in the gaps. If you listen to the DCA version of the opening, you can clearly tell that at least the Disney isn't Jack. Gentlemen, boys and girls, Disney proudly presents our spectacular festival pageant of nighttime magic and imagination in thousands of sparkling lights and electro-synthomagnetic musical sounds. Disney's Electrical Parade! Lots of Main Street Electrical Parade questions this month. Dan wrote in, I've been trying very hard to find the audio to the Main Street Electric Parade Christmas version when the parade returned to Walt Disney World. I was wondering if perhaps you might have or know where I could find this audio. That would be awesome if you could help me out with this. I've been searching everywhere to find it. Well, Dan, a while back I played a clip from Disneyland Paris' Christmas Edition Electric Parade, but I wasn't actually aware of Walt Disney World having a Christmas version. Anyone out there want to handle this for Dan? Shoot me the info, or if you have it, the clip, and I'll run it on the show. And while we're on the subject of the Main Street Electrical Parade... It's time for the Main Street Electrical Parade Clip of the Month! Hey there, Patrick. It's Mouseketeer Greg up here in Seattle, Washington. As you may know, I really love the Electrical Parade. It's my favorite parade at Disneyland. Well, as it turns out, I've got an Electrical Parade clip that you may have never heard, so if we haven't vlogged this dead horse long enough, here it is. Now, if that sounded kind of tinny and low fidelity, it's because it's coming out of about a one-inch speaker buried inside a little five-inch plush toy. Now, this toy is shaped like the turtle float that you can see in the parade. You know, there's those 
little bugs that spin around and make the funny little sounds. And sometimes they'll come up and sneak up on people and surprise them as they're watching the parade. Well, this one's shaped like the turtle, and he's got the glasses and the little necktie. He's really cute. I got this toy a while back as a gift from my Aunt Lori and Cousin Heather. And, um, well, it's kind of a cool little thing. When you, it's, He's about five inches in diameter, and you, when you squeeze his paw, a little light on his back kind of flashes. You can see it if you look real close. And he plays the theme song. Now, I don't know if this really counts as an official release of the theme, but it was official park merchandise. It's still got the Disneyland Resort tag on it. So I think that counts. Anyway, I thought you'd want to hear it. It's pretty cool. Here, let's listen one more time. Ah, that takes me back. Anyway, I can't wait to hear what other goofy stuff the fans send in. And I'm really enjoying this segment, so keep up the good work. Thanks a lot, my friend. Speaking of stuffed animals that make a noise when you squeeze it... What do you want? You still have that crazy dolphin that Clinton sent? Who, Hoppy? He's right here. You know what to do. (coughs) Okay, go away. Okay, see ya. Well, since you guys have come through for me so far when I'm looking for something for a show, I thought I'd try again. Except this one isn't for a show, it's just for me. About ten years ago, when I moved from California to Oklahoma, I packed what I could into my car. The rest was left with my parents and a friend. My plan was to return later in the year and pick up everything I'd left. Well, the friend disappeared and took my belongings with him. Good friend, huh? Anyway, over the years, I've replaced what I could, but one item has eluded me so far. Back in 1987, I went to Universal Studios in Hollywood for the first time and bought one of those A Day at Universal Studios VHS cassettes. I can't remember what it was called exactly, but you get the gist. I've been scouring eBay for a few years now and haven't had any luck. Now, I know someone out there besides myself bought the thing, so if you've got the tape, can you please contact me? I'd like to borrow it so I can transfer it to DVD for myself, and I'll send a copy of the DVD back with your tape. This thing's pretty old, like I said. I bought it back in 1987 when King Kong was new. So if you think you've got what I'm looking for, please let me know. I'm sure I can probably talk Paul into throwing in a few of our Window to the Magic DVDs to make it worth your trouble. Alright, back to the emails. Jeff wrote in with an interesting suggestion. Patrick, after hearing the never-ending additions to the Electric Light Parade Minutia catalog and the fine details regarding the Disneyland Hotel, it occurred to me that there's a huge business opportunity looming at us. We simply must open a senior citizen's living complex for Disney wackos. That way we can all sit around in our rocking chairs and trade Disney stories in a community that might actually appreciate them. If we end up in a more general home, the other citizens might spike our hot cocoa or sabotage our wheelchairs to get rid of us. You know, Jeff, that's a great idea. I can see it now. Hey there, Patrick. Huh? He said hello, Patrick. Hey? Don't bother. His hearing's been gone for years. What happened to his hearing? Hello? We're all over a hundred. Where do you think his hearing went? Hey, don't get mad at me. Uh, Hey, hey, uh, do you want to play some canasta? No. (laughs) You always cheat. His hearing went because he spent too much time listening to the electric parade clips in his headphones. Huh? Main Street Electrical Parade? Best show ever. That's what they used to say. The best show ever. They said the same thing about all of your shows. Was it? He said... Oh, forget it. Oh, while I'm thinking about it, I have some cool news. 
I've been featured in the summer issue of the E-Ticket magazine all about Walt's model shop. I just got my issue, so they should be shipping if you've got a subscription, and if they're not available in the parks yet, they should be soon. They talked to me about some of my at-home Imagineering projects, and even used a few pictures of a couple of my favorites. My Mr. Toad in Hell and Jungle Cruise dioramas are right there on the first page. I love the E-Ticket magazine, so it was a real honor for me to be included in the issue. So... I'm sure you're all interested to find out who won last month's Disneyland Hotel Trivia Contest. Dave wrote in, Okay, after way too much headache-inducing research, I've still only managed to find two of the rather family namesakes at the Disneyland Hotel, so fear that I won't make it into the contest. He followed by including the two locations that he did know, and just about everyone sent in an email that went about the same. This was no easy question, folks. I didn't even know the third location, so even if you only got two of those locations correct, good job. Three of you, however, did get all three right. So first, congratulations to Jeremiah Good, Stephanie Rutherford, and Craig Weiberg for correctly emailing in the names of all three mystery locations. As I'm sure the suspense is now killing all of you, I'd like to welcome Don Ballard back to the show to reveal the answer to the question. Hi, Don. Thanks for coming back on the show. Hello. Pleasure to be back. Why don't you remind everybody what the trivia question is? The question was, name the three locations at the Disneyland Hotel that were named after somebody within the Rather family who were the original owners and developers of the hotel. All right, Don. Go ahead and fill them in on the answer. Location one was the Bonita Tower, which is named after Bonita Granville, Jack Rather's wife, actually his second wife. And that was the actual first tower at the Disneyland Hotel. Uh, Location two was Granville Steakhouse, which was, again, named after Bonita Granville, uh, which was her maiden name. And uh, she was a a famous child actress in the the 30s and 40s. Location three was Maisie's Pantry. And that's the tough one that I didn't think a lot of people would get because Maisie, rather, was Jack Rath's mom. And they named it after her because she uh, liked the types of food that were in there. And um, so Jack Rather saw to it that a location within the uh, Disneyland Hotel was named after his mom. And uh, that's it. And that's the, uh, the answers to the trivia question on uh, what was named after people within the Rather family at the Disneyland Hotel. Like I said, since three of you got the answer right, we placed your names in a hat and the winner is... Don, would you like to do the honor? The winner of the trivia contest was Stephanie Rutherford from Ventura, California, and I just wanted to say congratulations, and I hope you enjoy the book. Congratulations, Stephanie. I'll have that copy of Don's Disneyland Hotel book on its way to you shortly. And for the rest of you that would like a copy of Don's book, don't forget about that special offer Don has extended to all the Window to the Magic listeners. If you purchase his book through windowtothemagic.com, you'll save over $10. And that deal won't be around forever, so don't drag your feet. Head over to our website and into the podcast section for all the details. Well, Don, I want to thank you for coming back to the show again. I, I really hope that you had a good time and, and that your experience on the show was, uh, was what you had hoped it would be. I've gotten a good response, and I've also uh, enjoyed the, uh, the people that wrote in you know, with their questions and comments and things and uh, had a couple of people contact me and, you know, with their own interesting stories on the hotel and anecdotes and things, and it's, it's, it's really been a good experience. And, like I said last month, if we get an email or two from anyone wanting to know anything about the Disneyland Hotel, I'll be sure to check in with you and have you back on the show to answer their questions. That sounds great. I've really enjoyed this experience, and I enjoyed doing the interview, and I'd love to talk to anybody if anybody has any questions about the hotel or if they have any experiences or stories they'd like to share from the time they spent at the hotel. I'd love to hear it, so just let me know. Oh, I'd like to tip my hat to Jeremiah Good for going above and beyond in his quest to answer that trivia question correctly. He actually went all the way to Dave Smith, Disney's chief archivist, to track down the correct answer. So, Jeremiah, my hat's off. Good use of resources. And for the last email this month, Myron wrote in, Howdy. Just a quick note. I'm a huge Disney fan and really do enjoy your show. In one of the past few episodes, it was noted that Tom Sawyer Island 
only exists in Disneyland Park and the Magic Kingdom Park in Florida. But there is another at Tokyo Disneyland located in Western Land. Just wanted to pass along the info. Well, I don't believe I ever said that. Maybe Paul? Regardless, we do on occasion make a mistake, so if it was said, thanks for clearing that up. And while we're on the subject of Tom Sawyer's Island... Down there is the rootinest, tootinest, shootinest land of all. Frontierland. It's a great place to warm up your six-shooters. The Mark Twain's the proud queen of Frontierland's big river. Later, we'll border for an upriver excursion. There's Fort Wilderness. Our studio gang is going to defend it against an Indian attack. Guns and ammunition will be pretty free, of course. 17 different tribes are assembling in the Indian village to perform their ceremonial dances for our Disney party. Tom Sawyer's Island. We're going to ferry over to it on Huck Finn's raft, explore some caves and try a little cane pole fishing. This month, I'd like to talk about the Rivers of America. Actually, the changes around the Rivers of America. It's really amazing just how many things have changed along the riverbank over the years. I'm going to be playing clips from the Mark Twain's narration from four different decades. So, first, let's introduce all four captains. The Mark Twain captain from 1969. Greetings, folks. This is your pilot speaking from the wheelhouse. Welcome aboard the Mark Twain, Queen of the Riverboats. 1979. Greetings, folks. This is your captain speaking from the wheelhouse. Welcome aboard the Mark Twain, Queen of the Riverboats. 1987. Howdy, folks. This is your captain speaking. I'd like to welcome you aboard the Mark Twain, Queen of the Riverboats. And 1999. Howdy, folks. Welcome aboard the Mark Twain Riverboat. This is your captain speaking to you from the pilot house up here on the Texas deck. These captains and their respective narrations will be our window into the river's history. Before we board the Mark Twain for our tour, let's go back and listen in on the christening and maiden voyage of the Mark Twain. A stern wheel riverboat, something most living Americans have never seen. A popular boat up and down the Mississippi, 50 years ago and more. And Walt Disney has built this great, big, beautiful, authentic stern wheel paddle boat from keel to smokestack. A quarter of a million dollars worth of boat that hasn't been built in America for 50 years. Loaded with gay and carefree, happy passengers. A band playing up there in the second deck, which is the Grand Salon deck. All paneled in special woods ready for the parties of the year. Incidentally, Walt Disney and his wife, Lily, celebrated their 30th anniversary last Wednesday right here in a special party aboard the Mark Twain. But right now, it's my pleasure to introduce the lovely lady and famous star whom Mr. Disney has asked to christen the Mark Twain. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Irene Dunn. Hello, Irene. How are you? My, it's listing. It's listing a little because it'll be shoving off in a moment. Yes, well, this is an authentic stern wheeler. Did you know that? 105 feet long. Well, how do you know all this? Well, you see, my father used to be supervising general of steamships in America, and my grandfather used to build boats like this. I'll bet your dad would love to be here today up there standing by the yes, wheelhouse. I can almost see him standing up there now with the captain alongside of him, just as though it were the greatest place in the world. Well, now, Miss Dunn, you're holding a very special bottle here in your arms. Yes, I am, Walt. You see, um, this bottle contains waters from all the leading rivers in America. Brought here from all these towns by the great rivers. That's right. So with these precious waters... I'm going to christen this boat the Mark Twain. And there the boat is christened, and it starts on its daily trips up and down the rivers of the world, of America, that is. Thank you, Miss Dunn. Thank you. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I've got other places to go. 
And uh, the Commodore, Admiral Joe Fowler, up there in the wheelhouse, looks like they're getting ready to shove off. So I better... Goodbye, Irene. And goodbye, everybody. Have a good ride. There goes the whistle. Take her away, Admiral. gets ready to start on her maiden voyage. The Mark Twain, a proud symbol of that romantic era when whole cities grew out of river ports. The churning paddle wheels brought new people, new customs, and new industries to those fabulous ports of call. Pittsburgh, St. Louis, and Natchez. Boat even brought a new kind of music up the river from the city where the blues were born, where the Dixieland style was king, New Orleans. Now, back in 1955, even though Ronald Reagan mentioned New Orleans, there was no New Orleans Square. That all changed, however, in July of 1966. Disneyland has always had a big river and a Mississippi sternwheeler. It seemed appropriate to create a new attraction at the bend of the river. And so Disneyland's New Orleans Square came into being. A New Orleans of a century ago when she was the gay Paris of the American frontier. In 1803, the United States wanted New Orleans for a port. In order to get it, we had to make a package deal with Napoleon. He insisted that we buy the peripheral area. So we threw in an extra million and ended up with 800,000 square miles. The Louisiana Purchase was probably the greatest real estate deal of all time. It included all of this territory from the Gulf to Canada. Total cost, $11 million. And by the way, Disneyland's New Orleans Square alone cost $15 million. But of course, a dollar went much further in those days. It was a gala day when we officially opened New Orleans Square. We had a real jubilee, Southern style. Aboard the Mark Twain, representatives of the press and other guests got a preview of New Orleans Square as they came downriver for the opening ceremony. architecture and atmosphere of old New Orleans of the 1850s has been retained. The narrow winding streets, intimate courtyards, and the iron lace balconies are authentic in every detail. Well, now that Walt's opened up New Orleans Square, we're all caught up with our 1969 captain. So let's get on board. All passengers aboard, secure all cargo, engine room, stand by, cast off bow line, engine room, full steam ahead. Greetings, folks. This is your pilot speaking from the wheelhouse. Welcome aboard the Mark Twain, queen of the riverboats. Still our most important means of transportation here on the frontier. We are now beginning a steam-powered journey down the rivers of America. 
for a first-hand look at our country's growth westward from the shores of the Mississippi. To the starboard, Tom Sawyer's Island, where Tom and Huck explore Injun Joe's secret cave, visit the old gristmill, and climb to their lofty treehouse up on Indian Hill. Attention deck watch. New Orleans Square, dead ahead. Stand by for possible heavy water traffic. Ahead is the Paris of the Western Frontier, the grand old city of New Orleans. Along her winding street, you can hear the sounds of Dixieland jazz. Here in the Delta City, cotton is king. The chief cargo of riverboats like our Mark Twain. This bristling port is also the gateway to the Spanish Main and the Pirates of the Caribbean. Beyond New Orleans Square is the tower where trains take on water for their steam engines before heading out into the frontier. This portion of the trip has always been pretty much the same. Around the bend is the Haunted Mansion. Of course, back in 1969, it wasn't quite ready yet. Next to the water tower is an old mansion that hasn't been occupied for many years. They claim it's haunted now, and sometimes when the river's quiet, we hear strange and eerie sounds from over that way, as though somebody was preparing the house for visitors. In fact, they say the river folks are planning to open it up this year. It would, of course, open later that year, so let's jump to 1999. Over there across the way is what used to be the grandest mansion in these parts. It's been sitting there empty for, must be 20 years. Yep, that mansion looks pretty respectable from the outside. But the townsfolk tell me a whole different story. They say it's haunted and late at night when the river's real quiet. Strange and unearthly sounds reach out from that old house. Now, now, now hold on there, Mr. Twain. You're starting to scare the youngsters. Not to mention me. <laughs> Sir, truth is the most valuable thing we have. Uh, I believe we should be economical with it. Let's continue up the river. We're also passing Fowler's Harbor, home port for the proud three-masted windjammer, Columbia. On Tom Sawyer's Island, you see Castle Rock, the natural arch bridge, and the last outpost of civilization, Old Fort Wilderness. Shelter and protection for the hardy pioneers pushing ahead into unsettled territory. Off the port bow, a friendly Indian village where members of many tribes gather to perform ancient ceremonial dances. Let's stop for a moment and visit the Indian village. Aho, PK in Taru. Welcome to our village. We are going to do some dances for you. This first one will be the hoop dance. This is one of the most spectacular dances developed by our people. Our dancers from New Mexico, a member of the Santa Clara Pueblos, Red Eagle. Okay, let's hop back on board the Mark Twain in 1979 and see what became of the Indian village. Off the port bow, Bear Country. A different sort of settlement right here on the edge of the frontier. You've never seen a wilder bunch than the stars of the country bear jamboree. 
And let's not forget to take a look over to the left at the 1969 canoe dock. Along the river's edge is the dock for the Indian war canoes we often see in frontier waters. Apparently over the years, the Indians that manned the canoes became less and less reliable, so park management started bringing in Hawaiians and Hispanics and anyone else who looked the part of an Indian. Of course, when a group of white Indians was hired, they finally decided to trade in the feathered headbands for coonskin caps. The Davy Crockett Explorer canoes also tie up at the landing here in Bear Country. And of course, this left the local Indians in a bad mood. We're now passing beyond the limits of protection from Fort Wilderness. That village of teepees on the island belongs to a hostile Indian tribe that roams this territory. Attention, deck watch. Burning settlers' cabin off starboard bow. Often settlers in this area are not welcome because of unfriendly tribes. And as you can see, some fall victim to Indian arrows. Yep, you heard that right. A dead settler. Which brings us to the most interesting change to the river over the years. For quite a while, there was a dead settler laying on top of a pile of logs with an arrow sticking out of his chest, right in front of the burning cabin. His murderers watching from the other side of the river. Indian war party off port, midships. Crew, stand by. That war party up on the bank will probably let us pass through. Some tribes call our steamboat Penelore, meaning fire canoe, because of the fire billowing out of our smokestacks. They believe our ship is their legendary Comet of the Summer returning. By the 1980s, Disneyland Park Management decided that a corpse was probably not the most Disney thing to have on display, so the body and the war party were removed and Jed moved in. Well, I'll be. Here's one of those homesteads now. Old Jed there's been supplying moonshine to the keelboats for oh, a few months now. He said his business was just about to catch fire. It looks like he was right. Not really sure how a backwoods alcoholic was a step up from a dead body, but Disney management seemed to get it figured out pretty quick because they made Jed pack up his still and move out. Apparently, the new tenants weren't much smarter. Attention, Captain! Settler's cabin afire off starboard bow. Yeah, I see it. Poor souls. I'm afraid we're too late to help. Captain, uh, pardon my opinion, but uh, it looks as if that fire was caused by just plain carelessness. Those folks aren't only losing their own home, but the home of those eagles as well. <laughs> my sympathy goes to the eagles. Yeah, looks like the signs are clear. Man is in the forest. A few years ago, Disney management finally figured out how to put out the perpetually burning log cabin. Stop paying the gas bill. Yep, the cabin no longer burns, which is a real shame because it was one of those nice little Disney touches. Perhaps down the road, another careless settler will move in that likes to play with matches and the cabin will burn again. Until then... Only you can prevent wildfires. Oh, and speaking of bears, let's not forget about bear country. There's been a lot of commotion in these parts lately. Seems they're building critter country a whole new mountain. Splash Mountain, they call it. And I hear tell that Br'er Bear, Br'er Fox, and even Br'er Rabbit are all gonna live there. The rumor says Splash Mountain will be the biggest, the wettest, the fastest, and the wildest flume ride anyone's ever seen. Well, you can see for yourself when it opens early in 1989. Back in 1987, Bear Country began its transformation into Critter Country. Of course, that opening early in 1989 didn't exactly happen. It was a little closer to late 1989, but as the Finding Nemo submarine voyage has proven, they don't always make their originally planned openings. And if you ask me, if they want to back an opening up a few times to guarantee the best possible attraction, that's just fine. Now coming up on the port side is the most famous and strangest mountain in these parts. Those folks who've explored it from the inside say that there's music in its caves and laughter in its falls. <laughs> now who's telling stories here? Back up the river, we come to the Indian village, or as the keelboat captains used to identify them, the Pinewood Indians, because that's what they're carved out of. We are now passing a village of friendly Indians. 
fur trappers in these parts often stop here to barter for pelts and other valuable goods. When the river got its big revamp in the early 90s, some of the frozen Indian figures were replaced with characters that could move and gesture. They even installed a fully animated animatronic Indian shaman. Indian village ahead, Captain! You know, their long, proud history is handed down verbally, just as that shaman is doing now. But judging by the flute he's holding, I, I'd wager he's telling the story of how the flute came to his people. That story probably goes back, uh, oh, for generations. Makes me want to learn the language just so I can listen in. Proof that Disney likes to recycle, the shaman and even the auctioneer pirate in Pirates of the Caribbean are actually just recycled Lincoln animatronics. No sense in letting a perfectly good robot go to waste, now is there? Now, something that was mentioned in all but the 1999 narration was the Indian burial ground. Over there on the island is a rare sight. It's an Indian burial ground. Braves who fall in battle are brought here and placed atop those poles. Sometimes, late at night, you can see Indians coming down to pay their respects. Being in Oklahoma, I can't just hop in the car and investigate, so I can't say whether or not the burial site is still there or not. Since it's no longer mentioned, however, I'd assume not. Back on the left is Nature's Wonderland. Beyond the ridge ahead is Nature's Wonderland. On occasion we see pack mules and even old mining trains winding through the frontier bound for bear country, beaver valley, and the great living desert. The waterfalls ahead come from Cascade Peak, highest point in the wilderness. And then in 1979, Big Thunder Mountain moved in. Just ahead of the tracks that used to carry old mining trains back into the hills. Some real exciting things are happening over there now, because Big Thunder Mountain Railroad has moved in. Big Thunder runs the fastest and wildest trains anywhere on the frontier. Finally, off to the right, you'll find one of those old attraction leftovers I'm so fond of pointing out. A keelboat. Before steamships come along, supplies had to be hauled up the river by them no-good keelboats. A trip back then used to drag on for several months. But now, thanks to riverboats, it takes only a week. I guess that's why you don't see many of them keelboats on the river these days. Oh, except maybe to pick up some of Jed's moonshine. Up until about ten years ago, you could take a ride around the rivers of America on either the Bertha May or the Gullywumper. The Bertha May was sold in an online auction, and the Gullywumper found a home as a prop on the river. These two keelboats were recycled from the Davy Crockett films, but weren't sturdy enough for the day-to-day stress, so stronger replicas were quickly built and put into use. You know, as much as I love those old Davy Crockett films, I can't seem to recall the name of the guy that captained the Gullywumper. Everybody knows who the captain of the Gullywumper is. It's me, Mike Fink, King of the River. Nice to meet you, Mike. I am the original ringtail roarer from the Thunder and Lightning country. I'm a real snorter and a headbuster. I can outrun, outjump, outsing, outswim, outdance, outshoot, outeat, outbreak. Outtalk? Yeah, outtalk, outcuss, and outfight. Anybody in a whole Mississippi and Ohio River is put together. I don't know, Mike. Some of these podcasters can probably give you a run for your money in the talking department. Ain't no question about it. Well, I better get back to the show. You look like you have somewhere to be anyway. You keep me from a drink. All right, see you later then, Mike. Oh, Mike, if you're looking for a drink, you want to go to Jed's place. Can't miss it. It's probably on fire. Well, we're coming up on our home port, so I'll let the captain bring us in. Up ahead is the landing where our journey ends. Any parting words, Mr. Twain? Well, I'd like to leave the folks with just one thought for the day. Always do right. This will gratify some people and (laughs) astonish the rest. (laughs) Thank you, Mr. Twain. And thank all of you for traveling with us aboard the Mark Twain Riverboat. We hope to see you again real soon. Oh, and before I get too far ahead of myself, I don't want to forget to mention the fact that not only does Pete Renaday provide the narration on the sailing ship Columbia, but he provides two voices on the current Mark Twain narration. The Leadsman. Leadsman! Sound off! By the mark. Mark one. Mark twain. 
and, of course, Mark Twain. Now, let's listen to an old clip from Tom Sawyer's Island. That old island used to have an awful lot to offer before the Disney lawyers and old age got their hands on it. And now let's catch the raft for Tom Sawyer's Island. This is your chance to drift back into the boyhood times of Tom and Huck. Everything on this island is for fun and for free. This is an early American grist mill run by water power. Inside, you can see how great-grandmother's cornmeal and flour were made. Tom and Huck's secret treehouse is the loftiest land point in Disneyland. From the top, you can high-spy all of Frontierland. Believe it or not, three streams originate from the roots of this old oak. This one empties into the river here at Smuggler's Cove, and you can rumble across on the pontoon bridge. Once you've got the swing of it, you might try the suspension bridge above. Hang on, everyone. This is Huck Finn's favorite fishing spot, but everyone's welcome to try his luck. Bamboo poles, hooks, and lines are furnished. Even do-it-yourself bait. The fish are real, and they really bite. What's more, you can keep all you catch. Here's Injun Joe's mysterious hideout. exploring, you'll find the island is honeycombed with caves. Deep in the passageways, you can discover strange rock formations and fossils. The rocks along the ridge of the island are just made for climbing. even a Stone Age teeter-totter. And a merry-go-round, too. Castle Rock is a labyrinth of caves. Getting lost in here is fun. These underground openings were built for a small fry to go through, but some of the adults can make it, too. Unfortunately, Fort Wilderness has been completely closed, and the rock carousel and teeter-totter and some other rock work have been completely removed. But the island still has a lot to offer. The official Disneyland website provides this info on the island. Welcome to Tom Sawyer Island. This fun-filled playground of caves, escape tunnels, secret passages, and swaying bridges has been renovated, and now even more adventure awaits you. Hop a log raft across the rivers of America and be sure to check out Tom and Hunk's Castle Rock Lookout, an invention-filled fortress and prized viewpoint for island explorers. And that's just the beginning. From Tom and Huck's Castle Rock Lookout, you can take a peek at Frontierland with spyglasses, observing passing boats, and ring a ship's bell in case of intruders. Explore the dreaded Injun Joe's Cave, complete with its bottomless pit. Take a shortcut to Smuggler's Cove across the thrilling Barrel Bridge. Tom's Treehouse, the precarious suspension bridge, and the pontoon bridge have also been newly renovated. New landscaping, wider walkways, and trails too. So, disappointed as I may be in what they removed, I couldn't be happier that they didn't close the island. Of course, if the Disney lawyers had their way, the island would have been shut down altogether. Heaven forbid a kid gets a scraped knee. Of course, I can't blame the lawyers. It's those lawsuit-happy parents that are really to blame. And when I take the kids over to the island, I know we'll all have a great time, even if I can't fit through half the openings in Castle Rock anymore. Oh, it's starting to get dark. There's the old Mark Twain coming around the bend, and like every night, her passengers are having a ball. 
You know, board the Mark Twain, we have a real Dixieland combo. We call them the young men from New Orleans. And they're real old timers who were down there when jazz first came into being. Monette Moore is the singer with the group. And incidentally, I just saw Satchmo Armstrong down there waiting at the dock. So why don't you kids run along and get aboard and really have yourself a ball. Great. Let's get back on board and head up to the second level. Thank you very much, Mr. Armstrong. You're welcome. Ah, that's what kind of music. Imagine you being on the Mark Twain, and welcome. Yes, yes I guess. I know this seems like old times to you, don't it? It sure huh? does. It yes, sure you look does. good, too, man. And with Dennis Sincere, yes, yes. you know who played with me in one of my swinging groups called uh, Hot Five. Yes. Oh, that was a day. Yeah. We didn't make much money, but we had so much fun. <laughs> yeah, but the rent was cheap, too, Daddy. <laughs> well, you know... Along about that time, Johnny St. Cyr was playing banjo in New Orleans when the blues was born. Well, I was there to help to deliver it. (laughs) (laughs) Since all the cats are here, let's recreate. (laughs) Say, Louie, how about doing some parading down Old Bourbon Street? Well, okay. Let us all take some. Yeah. We're going to rock this old Mark Twain right on down to New Orleans. (laughs) Let's fly down or drive down to New Orleans. Those pretty historic scenes I'll take you for a view Down Bourbon Street Oh, there'll be a lot of hot spots You'll see a little big shots Down on Bourbon Street, yeah Let's fly down I'd like to thank you all for listening to the windowtothemagic.com podcast. 
as we enjoy our second year of bringing you the very best in audio experiences from throughout the world of Disney. The windowtothemagic.com podcast can be reached in the following ways. Our email address for questions, comments, contest entries, and suggestions is podcast at windowtothemagic.com. The windowtothemagic.com telephone hotline is 206-984-9886. That's 206-984-WTTM for Window to the Magic. This show is a member of the Disney Podcast Network family. The DPN is a collective discussion forum consisting of some of the finest unofficial Disney podcasts available on the internet. Pay a visit to www.disneypodcastnet.com and join in on all the fun with your favorite Disney podcasters and listeners. We appreciate your feedback, so be sure to call in or write us soon and share your thoughts with us. Be sure to tune in next week when Paul, as always, Barry, returns once again as your host. This has been Window to the Magic Podcast number 62, and this is Patrick, best show yet heard, saying, I'll see you next time. The old Mark Twain, the old Mark Twain, see her round in the bay. Straight down the river she's turning, a puffin' and churning. Now there's a sight, my friend. Folks all at the railing, waving and a hailing, see that smiling crowd. Hear that banjo's drumming, hear that drummer drumming, don't that boat look proud. Whistle blows, it curls my toes That call just can't be ignored I'm all aglow and a quiver To travel down river I wanna get aboard Hey there, you old my claim You old my claim Come on and take me aboard